This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to talk about credit card debt and how to pay it off. And there are some specific ways to do that. Um, But, gee, you know, it feels like a big, giant thing Mm -hmm. to have to take on because it it doesn't seem like anybody's willing to give breaks on these things. Well, it's just so easy, Elaine, just to sit into the cycle, slip into the cycle of just pay the minimum each month. No one ever calls you for a delinquent payment. Because it actually tells you on the statement. Yeah, that's all you need to do to tick the box, right? And then you're compliant and your credit rating is usually okay and all that good stuff. But I've had clients tell me, you know, it feels you're pushing a boulder up the hill every month and it just tumbles down against you every month after because the interest just piles on again. So it can feel hopeless if all you're doing is just making minimum payments. Absolutely, because they do tell you too. I mean, that's sort of a new thing, right? That the credit card company will tell you how long it will take if you just pay the minimum, Mm -hmm. thank you very much, how long it will take to pay off. And just that debt, that current statement, not the... uh, not if you continue to use yeah, your Yeah, not card. with any new purchases or right. things like that. So, you know, let, let's go through a couple examples yeah. there just to, to give the listeners a bit of an illustration of, you know, how severe it can be to be in some credit card debt and just be making the minimums. So, you know, let's say it's a $5,000 balance. So it's something probably a lot of folks could relate to, you know, maybe things got out of hand for a few months, there was a vacation overrun or something like that. Well, let's say it's a $5,000 debt and it's on a store credit card. And this is something you wouldn't want to do because, you know, the big retailer credit cards are typically the highest interest rates, you know, at 29 interest rate. If you were just paying the minimum payments on $5,000, Elaine, it would take you 50 years and four months to get out of that debt. That's crazy. 50 years to clear $5,000. And you know how much you would have paid back by the end of it? I can't imagine. 23, almost $24,000. So you paid the debt four or five times over. You preserve great credit, but at what expense? That $5,000 50 years later, you won't even remember anything about what you had spent that on. And that's only on that one card. And that's that's if you never use it again ever. Yeah. Until the end of time. And someone might be saying, okay, well, who's going to put, you know, that much money on a store credit card? Well, clearly some people, because I see them, but that's well, not your best practice, right? No, it's so, not. But, yeah. uh, but you know, furniture, yeah. if you're buying furniture, sometimes mm-hmm. you do that at a major retail, uh, like a department store. Oh, yeah. Those can right? be upwards of 29, 30% easy. Yeah. yeah. And they're, you know, big purchases. Yeah. Unless you've got the cash on hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy. So let, let's keep it that 5000 and let's yes. say, okay, you know, it's a typical credit card, which is about 18.9% interest, so significantly right. better. Um, you're making your minimum payments. How long do you think it's going to take? It's better than 50 years for sure. Is it? 19 years and nine months. So, you know, <laughs> oh, still, if you were late oh. in your working life, you're ready to retire and you're getting this thing paid off. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely, it's again, the 20-year plan for 5,000 bucks, even at a reasonable standard credit card interest rate. Um, you know, final example here, and then we'll move on, is let's say you've got a low rate interest card, except people come in and say, oh yeah, this card is great. You know, it's cheaper than the other card. So I put things on it. I carry a balance, but I know I'm not getting that far behind. So a lot of low rate cards might be, you know, 11.9% interest. Same 5,000 bucks, 
15 years. 15 years. So you're still in this cycle for quite a long time. Yeah, very So what I want folks to take away from this is making your minimum payments is not a solution that will ever get you out of debt. It's just a means for you to preserve great credit and pad the bank's bottom line. So what's the first thing you should do if you've got big credit card debt? How do you deal with it? Yeah, so today's segment, I wanted to talk about things people can do that don't necessarily include Sands and Associates, but things anybody could do. So, you know, the first one is just try to negotiate. You know, a lot of people think that just because you got this card and there's a certain rate that's in all the advertisements, that's the best that you can do. It's often not the best that you can do. Really? They will ch- they will lower it? Yeah. And now it depends on your situation. If you've been delinquent for the last six months and they're calling you all over the place, no chance on that. If you've never missed a payment and you're telling them, you know what, this interest rate's too high. I'm considering taking my business elsewhere for a better deal. Generally, you'll have a positive conversation and you might end up with some interest rate reduction. Yeah. There's literally no downside to doing this other than your time and perhaps a little bit of embarrassment. We don't like to ask for things in in life, but this is one of the times where if you don't ask, you'll never get it. So I would say call your bank, call your whatever the credit card company is, and just explain that, yeah, I feel like this interest rate is too high. I would like to know what my options are to lower it. Okay. Now, what are the, uh, there's one more, there's a, two more things or one more thing that you could do as well. When you say that there, if one credit card has a lower interest rate than the other, mm-hmm. you may want to move the money around or the debt around. Yeah. So that can be something to consider too. If you've got a few different cards and one is significantly lower and there's some room on there, you can do a balance transfer. Now, previously, you know, five, 10 years ago, balance transfers cost you nothing in fees. It was pretty straightforward. Now you got to be careful. I've seen a lot of card issuers, whatever balance you transfer over, they often take a 1% fee, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but Uh. you know, it's just cash right off the top just to move the money around. So again, make sure that it's going to pay off in the long term if there are some short-term fees, if you move money to a lower interest rate card. Okay. So then what? Then what do you do? Well, so say that you've moved things around as much as you can and your debts are where they are. Um, Then you've got to have a bit of a strategy of how are you going to pay these debts down. So it's assuming the situation is not so severe that you'd need the help of a trustee, but you might need just some help to organize things. So one approach that we like to do um, is to pay the highest interest cards first. So the steps you go through here is you'd sit down, you'd list all of your credit cards by interest rate with the highest rates at the top. So obviously, you know, the department store cards typically would be up there. Sure. You'd look at your monthly budget and you'd figure out how much can you afford to pay beyond the minimum payments. So the minimum payments, that's just going to be a a go-to. You've got to cover that each month or else you're going to be delinquent and we're assuming that you're going to try to pay these all off over time. Okay. But figure out, can I devote an extra $200, $300, $100, whatever it is above and beyond the minimums, figure out what that what that extra pot of money looks like. And then every month, take that extra money and apply it to the highest interest rate card only. So you pay the minimums on all of them, but the one that you're really trying to knock down is the highest interest rate cost. That makes sense. And once that one's gone, you move on to the second one, so on and so forth. And you celebrate every time that you pay a card off. You know, whether you go out, you go for a nice walk, you get yourself a coffee, you know, go <laughs> out and max the cards out. Yeah, but <laughs> don't buy anything big. Yeah, but the best things in life don't cost money, so treat yourself to those. Fair right? enough, fair mm-hmm. enough. So what about cons- Consolidating the debt um, as a strategy. Do you do a line of credit or get that consolidation? Yeah, that's what a lot of people really rush to first is, okay, we've got all these debts and a bunch of different cards. Uh, Let's try to simplify our life. Let's put everything together. And ideally, let's get a lower interest rate. And that can really work well for certain people if you can qualify for it. So Mm. the challenge is, 
you know, for a bank to do a consolidation loan, they're essentially going and paying off all of your other debts, paying them off in full, and then expecting you to keep them whole at the end of the day and pay the bank off in full. Right. Now, they're willing to take that risk if you've got something to pledge, if you've got assets, if you've got a house that has a lot of equity, if you've got a bunch of money in the bank. It's quite often it's the people that don't need the bank's help are the people that the bank wants to help the most. Right. Um, but if you're able to qualify for a consolidation loan, the really key important thing is to take those old credit cards and, you know, whether you freeze them, you chop them up, you do something, it's to stop using them. Because I've seen again and again people come into me, they had the consolidation loan two years ago, they thought they were going to pay everything down, and now they come in to see me. The consolidation loan hasn't moved that much because life intervened, and you know what? The credit cards are back where they were before the consolidation loan because it was just too tempting to use all this available credit. Or sometimes it's not even, it's it's circumstances. Mm-hmm. As you say, life happened. Like, yeah. And we know that one small thing can really cause big financial problems for people. Somebody yeah. gets sick, somebody, you know, whatever. There's a, a hundred different things that can oh, happen. Oh, you're exactly right, Elena. And thank you for making that point too. Yeah. So when I say it's too tempting, it's not that it's that, but it it's, can it's, be, for it sure. It can be, but it, it's often the case that, you know, something, a shock to the system happened, but sometimes it's, you know, it's a longer term, it's a budgetary leak. Every month there's a few hundred dollars of overspending that just gets put on credit. And until you address that, um, you're consistently going to have, have a bit of trouble. Okay, so consolidation loan, uh, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get that. What do I do then? Yeah, so if those other options aren't working for you, so you've tried to lower the interest rate by negotiating, you've tried to move balances around at the lowest possible interest rate, you've tried to consolidate and maybe you've been turned down or you've done it and the cards are back where they were, that's when you probably need to reach out to someone like a licensed insolvency trustee to consider a consumer proposal. And anyone that listens to our show on a long-term basis, they'll know exactly what a consumer proposal is. Sure. But in a nutshell, a consumer proposal is going to consolidate all the debt, set the interest down to zero, so not 20, not 10, not 15, 0%, and give you the time that you need to repay that reduced balance. So basically, reduce the debts to what you can afford, eliminate the interest, and give you a payment plan for the reduced balance. So, um, in... Okay, so that makes sense, and and that and that debt isn't just retail credit card stuff too. Mm-hmm. That's everything. That's yeah. as you mentioned, student loans and government stuff. Yeah. Um, what are there any sort of problems that people can run into trying to pay off their credit card debt? Yeah, there, there's a few of them, Elaine. You know, the first one is just what we talked about at the beginning. It's just sure. the idea of just getting caught in the cycle of only making the minimum payments and not seeing the debt go down. Right. So that can just be depressing over time. And, you know, increasingly these minimum payments, you know, if you're not using this card and you're paying it off, you tend to use another card. Then that one needs another minimum payment. So they tend to snowball over time. See, and that's the point that I would think that to talk to somebody mm-hmm. makes the best sense at that point. Because yeah. obviously there's something that's not quite quite I want to say out of whack but I uh, but that's not the right term but it there's an imbalance yeah that's fair. And there could be a number of factors for it. It might have nothing to do with the, the individual situation or judgments that they've made. Something just could have happened, but there's an imbalance with their ability to pay off these debts and have a financially successful future and the plan that they're going on now, which is the 50 or 100 year payment plan being stuck in the minimum payment trap. Now, how often do you find that people go into debt to pay off their debt? Very often. And yeah. and that could be um, uh, from a number of different sources. Yeah. And, and so often, Elaine, it's because that's the easiest thing to do. Sure. So if someone's calling you every month, they're coming through the phone saying you're a horrible person, they're a collection <laughs> agent that needs to be paid, and you know that you can make this go away if you get a cash advance from another card or move a balance over for here or there, you know, why wouldn't you do that to get this person off of your back? 
Yeah. Or if somebody wants to help you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got great people in our in our lives, yeah. and they say, well, listen, uh, why don't I loan you the money? Yeah. And we know that that... Well, quite often, if you do that, you don't deal with the underlying problem. So that's what we really like to do at Sands and Associates is to really sit down and, and figure out, well, what's causing the debt problem? Is it just a one-time thing that happened or is there an imbalance on a monthly basis? We need to really work with you on your budget. But if you don't deal with the underlying problem, you just address the symptom, um, it is going to recur again. Yeah. And what about using, if not, well, I guess credit and debt are really the same thing at that mm-hmm. point if you're trying to pay something off. Yeah, that's the almost the number one warning sign and definitely a number of years ago before you know all this minimum payments became more well known you knew someone was going to have a problem if every month they're using credit to pay credit or using debt to pay debt but essentially you know taking money from one card to pay another and then you clear off some some room there and then you move it to the other card um, you know sometimes it means taking a payday loan this month just to pay off your minimum payments for the next month but essentially making your obligations your payments that you have to make making them with borrowed money that's one of the number one warning signs that someone's going to have some financial challenges and I just want to add you know my experience of you is that you know that people for the for like 99% of folks are just trying to do the best they can yeah oh yeah no I when I came into this this uh, job, I really had no idea. And I thought that, you know, the potential for people abusing their debt would be far greater than what it actually is. Like, I can count in the fingers of one hand with a couple left over the number of people I've seen in 13 years of practice that were clearly out for their own personal benefit, and that was that. Right. Almost everybody else, really good, honest people. They need some compassion, some empathy to help them move forward from their debt situation. Go to Sands & Associates. Meet with Blair. Meet with the, the staff at the locations. What, there's 16 offices 17 now? now. 17 now, yes in British Columbia. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So life after a consumer proposal or bankruptcy, I think this is a great topic for a segment because if you're... Wanting to get some debt help, one of the things would be, okay, what then? Like, what's the long-term impact if I do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy for sure? Is this going to ruin my life? Yeah, I want to know what the impact's going to be. Not the month-to-month. When it's done, what happens then? So, cool. I'm glad we're doing this. Mm -hmm. So, first thing is, let's. can we talk about the length of each? Is yeah, there a of a difference? consumer proposal and a bankruptcy. You know, first yeah. off, how you even get started is, well, you come for a few meetings. So typically with Sands & Associates, you meet us three times. So the okay. first meeting, it's an initial consultation. Uh, we come in, you know, blank sheet of paper, ready to listen to all about the situation. You hopefully bring in a bit of information about your debts, about your assets, about your income, and we review everything, answer all your questions, and we have a bit of an idea of what some good solutions are for you. Okay. At that point, you go Customized, away. Customized, I might oh, add, of course, right? Yeah. It's completely based on what I have when I walk in the door. Yeah, exactly. So if someone's got, you know, $5,000 of debt, it's a different solution than someone with $50,000 or 500000 So yeah. um, assets and circumstances, you know, someone 80 years old has different objections than someone at 20 years old. Sure. So absolutely, it's a customized debt debt solution. So the first meeting is kind of high level in general. The second meeting, which can be just a couple days later or maybe a week later if you need to get information together, that's when you bring in all of the details. So you bring in, you know, your last year's taxes, you bring in the most recent bills, your pay stubs, nothing too extreme, but just basic stuff to prove everything you've told us about your debts and your assets. And then we review everything again. And we say, okay, we looked at a bankruptcy. We looked at a proposal. Um, here were the implications, the various payments. And the person typically makes a decision at that point on how to proceed. 
We meet a third time, which is usually a couple days later. We've prepared all the legal documents, and that's when the proceeding starts. So all three of those meetings can happen in the space of a week. Sometimes people spread them over a few months. We're indifferent. It's whatever pace the client wants to move at. And really importantly, no one makes any payments until and unless they've decided to file a formal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. There's no payments for the first couple meetings. If it's just free advice, well, then you move on with a little more information than when you started. Now, once you're into the proceedings, a consumer proposal can go for a maximum of five years, but typically two to three years is when most people pay off their consumer proposals. Uh, Bankruptcy is often a little bit shorter. So if someone's never been in bankruptcy before, if they're low income, bankruptcy is done inside of a year. So about nine months typically. If you're not low income, it's about a year different. So it's about 21 months in total. Neither of them are, you know, seven, 10 year type of cycles. They're generally, uh, bankruptcy is done within a couple of years, a proposal, a maximum of five, but typically about two to three years. Okay. So what happens then at the end or when these, when both of these things are completed? So if I, if I did a consumer proposal with you mm-hmm. and I did my, what would you say, 24 to 48 months? Yeah, that's sort of the like average. Yep. So I'm in the end of 48, mm-hmm. number 48 months. Yeah. So in a consumer proposal, you've got two obligations. One is to make all the payments, which you've now done, and to come for two counseling sessions, which you normally do in the first six months or so. So okay. we're going to assume that those have been wait. done as well. I no. do those in the beginning. No, by law, they've got to be done pretty well up front to give you all the habits to you know, change things over time. Oh, excellent. Okay, yeah. that makes good sense. Exactly. So when you're <laughs> done the proposal, um, the trustee reviews everything, all the payments, looks at all the claims, makes sure everything's been administered the right way, and then issues a certificate of completion or a full performance. So it's basically a legal certificate that absolves you from anything to do with these debts in the future. It says full and final settlement on everything you've done in the proposal, and you move forward with your life at that point. Um, If it's a bankruptcy, it's a little bit different um, in that there's a discharge. So when you go into bankruptcy, you're in the legal state of bankruptcy, uh, and the court has to agree to remove you from that legal state of bankruptcy. So it's more severe than a proposal. In a proposal, there's no sense that you're in bankruptcy or not. You're just doing a payment arrangement. Right. In a bankruptcy, you have to be discharged from bankruptcy. And at the end of either nine months or 21 months, if you've done everything you're supposed to do in the bankruptcy, you've given us all of your income information, you've cooperated on all the proceedings, um, the trust signs a document called a Certificate of Discharge, which discharges you from bankruptcy and absolves you from all of those debts. So it's very similar to a consumer proposal, but the important thing in a bankruptcy is that people could object. So in a consumer proposal, if you pay everything off, it's all good and done and you get your certificate. If it's in a bankruptcy, if someone says, you know, we think you've been fraudulent or maybe you've gotten rid of some assets and we didn't like that, they can apply to have matters heard in court. There's a little bit more of an uncertainty, but that's low single digit percentages. Quite often people just get their certificate from their trustee. The bankruptcy comes and goes pretty streamlined. Okay. And in a consumer proposal, nobody's going to come back at you because they had to agree in the first place. That's exactly it. Yeah. So they're they're happy. They're just happy. Yeah, Happy con- to be getting some money. In a consumer proposal, at least a majority of your debt had to say yes. Um, and if there is you know, a minority creditor that really didn't want the deal, well, unfortunately, they didn't have enough votes to get it changed. So you're right. right they, they lose a lot of their ammunition. In a bankruptcy, a bankruptcy is kind of forced on the creditors. They don't have any right to say yes or sure. no until the end, which is when they can object to the person finishing the bankruptcy. Makes sense. So I know that people get all concerned about credit scores mm-hmm. in a consumer proposal. Do they get impacted? And in a bankruptcy, do they get impacted and what kind of impact? 
Yeah, so yes is the answer in both. So okay. anytime you don't pay back all your debts in full with all the interest that they want, your credit takes a hit. That's the price of restructuring your debts. Now, it's not a lifelong sentence by any means, and we've often talked on this show how much smarter it is to take a short-term hit on your credit, clear off all the bad debt that you're dealing with, and then rebuild your credit with no debt. You'll be so much better off. Um, but the nuts and bolts of it are that if you did a consumer proposal, from the day you pay off the proposal, so if you pay it off in three years, the proposal is going to clear two to three years after that last payment, depending on the bureau, to be safe, let's say three years. Okay. So for the next three years after you've paid off that proposal, if someone looks at your credit, they're going to see all of your accounts and they're going to see, oh, included in consumer proposal. Okay. Now, anything new that you do after that is going to start to show up and the more new information you put on your credit report, usually within about a couple years after the proposal, even though it's still on your credit report, people can get mortgages, they can get car loans, they can apply for credit. So what you really do after the proposal matters a lot more than what happened before. Okay. Is, is everything itemized in terms of uh, the the transaction date? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every account on your credit report is going to show last activity, Got you know, it. when they receive dividends, all of that stuff. Okay. And now oftentimes, we talk about this a lot, there's often inaccuracy on credit reports. So whether it's a bankruptcy or a proposal, we tell everybody three months after you're finished, get copies of your credit reports just to make sure everything's updated correctly because oftentimes there are issues there. Got it. Now, with the bankruptcy from a credit rating point of view, a bankruptcy is typically over more quickly than a consumer proposal, but its credit rating lasts longer. So a lot of people think bankruptcy takes seven years. Well, it doesn't. It takes less than one year for most people, but it's noted on your credit report for six years after you finish it. So that's where kind of that seven-year myth comes from. Now, really importantly, just because it's on there for six years doesn't mean you can't get credit if you rebuild the right way. If you decide not to touch any credit until six years is gone, well, then yeah, you're going to have a zero rating. It's going to be pretty tough to start from there. But in our counseling sessions, we tell you as soon as you're discharged, go out and get a secured credit card. If you're if you're trying to build credit again, go out and get a secured credit card. You can never go over the limit, never get into trouble. But the best credit cards every month are going to put a good story on your credit report. We're going to tell you to try to save money, do an RRSP loan every year at tax time. That's going to report positively on your credit. And we're also going to tell you to pay the darn little cell phone every month because that's right. the number one thing that puts negative things on your credit. So to attend to every expenditure every month and make sure just the little bills don't get missed because those can really cause you an impact. Now, is it, it? We just have a minute or so left. Is should we talk about how long it takes for someone to establish new credit? I mean, mm-hmm. is that? That's a variable as well. Yeah, but with the right steps, um, there's a really a formula, and it's two to three years from okay. you know zero to hero, so to speak. Like to, from literally, you are in bankruptcy with no assets to you could be getting a mortgage can be as little as two to three years, um, and that's based on when you come out of a bankruptcy, you owe nobody anything. And what creditors tend to really put a lot of weight towards is about the last two years of history. So if you come out of a bankruptcy on a proposal, you get a couple of credit cards, you have limits that are relatively low, but you keep them less than 50% utilized, so you don't go over half of your limit, within a couple of years, you'll find that your credit rating has significantly improved. And does that include credit cards as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, credit cards are your number one way to improve the rating. That's what they measure a lot of the time. Okay. And car loans, too, that seems to be the other thing that people sort of... Are, are when they're in debt, yeah. a car loan can sometimes be part of that. You want to be careful because sometimes that's used to sell really high cost financing. Sometimes, you know, 30% per annum car financing to say yeah. it helps you build your credit. It's not worth that. Um, but yeah, the, a good car loan at a reasonable rate can help for sure. If you want to find out more information, get more information, sit down with somebody, I'm going to give you a phone number for Sands & Associates. They have 17 offices in British Columbia. It's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030 to get that first consultation as well as to find an office near you.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us from Big Bad Toronto is Doug Hoyes. Uh, Doug is a co-founder of Hoyes, Michaelis & Associates, one of Canada's largest pers- personal insolvency firms. In his 30 years as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee, he's personally helped over 10,000 folks solve their debt problems and rebuild their financial future. And he's pretty passionate uh, as an advocate for ensuring that people find the right solution for debt problems. He's interviewed in all kinds of media, including this show. Thank you very much, Doug. And shares his knowledge and expertise in a lot of common uh, financial myths and mistakes. He's been on CBC, Global News, Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, Business News, and so on and so on, even Huffington Post. So he's everywhere, which is great. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Doug. Great to be with you, Elaine. So uh, we're going to talk about an interesting study uh, that your firm undertook all about millennials. Uh, it's called the Millennials Debt Study. And I, when I saw that this is what we were talking about, I thought, what a great idea, because um, depending on how old one how old you are, how old I am. I have a particular view of how millennials view the world, and I'm really interested to see if that's true or if I've just bought into a stereotype. And, you know, I, I worry about them in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to, to financial stuff and money and debt and all that. Yeah, and I'm not a mind reader, so I'm not going to tell you how somebody else thinks. But what we did in this study was look at the actual data. So as you said, we're a firm of licensed insolvency trustees based here in Ontario. And so we took all the data from everybody who filed a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy with us over the last many years. We've been doing this study since 2011. And the overall study we call is it's Joe Detter. But this year we focused much more on millennials. And we define millennials as people who are, you know, roughly born between 1981 and 1996. So sort of, you know, 22 to 37 years old. And that's kind of an arbitrary definition, but that's the one that, that we used. And we compared them to other age groups, you know, like seniors and boomers and that sort of thing. And, uh, I mean, ultimately, at, at the core, we're all the same. I mean, we all want to have a good job. We all have you know, credit card debt and things like that. But millennials are faced with some specific challenges that older generations don't see. And I think your point about... Um, and really what you were saying is it's hard to understand what someone else is going through unless you've walked in their shoes. And so it's very easy if you're a baby boomer or maybe even someone retired to say, ah, those millennials today, I mean, they're always complaining about this, that, the other thing. I mean, I got a job, I worked, I didn't have all these problems, yada, yada, yada. And okay, but let's look at some actual facts here. So the biggest problem many millennials have today is student loan debt. And that's very easy for a baby boomer or a senior to say, well, I mean, when I went to school, I got a job. I paid for my school. What's your problem here, right? Because is that, is that not, a good impersonation I did there of, yeah, a, of an was, old person? It was, it was very good. It was very I, I good, Doug. But, I mean, the, you're absolutely right. But the situation is so completely different. I, When I went to school, I didn't have to pay multiples of thousands of dollars, depending on what I was studying, uh, per semester or per year compared to what today's uh, students are paying. 
Yeah, that's exactly the point. And so, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I graduated from university in 1987, so you can do the math. I know, I'm I'm not a young man. I'm not a young man. And so, when when I went to the University of Toronto, and I'm an accountant, so I took accounting courses. uh, My tuition was about a thousand bucks a year. So for all the courses, Doug. The, for all the courses, for all yeah, the, not wow. per course, per course, for a whole year, not yeah. just for a term, like right. for the whole year. Well, it's and interesting, so, Doug, because I graduated in 2002, uh, and my tuition was about $5,000 for all the courses. So it went up a factor of five, but it's even worse now. Yeah, yeah, and today, for a basic Bob education, you know, again, taking accounting or something really easy where there's, it's not very expensive, there's no lab work or anything like that, you know, so maybe it's 7000 bucks. But then, of course, you've got all the, the other stuff on top of it. So when I went to school, it was mathematically possible to get a summer job, mm-hmm. earn enough money to pay your tuition. I could get a part-time job during the year to pay for my you know, books and incidentals. My family helped out with living expenses. I didn't have to get any debt. Well, today, like you said, 7000 bucks is kind of the base number for tuition. And then when you add living expenses and books and everything else on top of that, it's a lot more. And if you want to take a real course, like not accounting, but engineering or something, mm-hmm. then you can easily be looking at sixteen or $18,000. Well, tell me how the math works with me getting a, a minimum wage job during the summer. There's no way I can generate that kind of money. So unless my family has money or unless I qualify for scholarships, I'm getting a student loan. And as a result, we're seeing more and more people graduating with student loans. And therefore, they're starting off behind where us older people started many years ago. I think it's a really valid point, a super valid point. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, too, where millennials get into that, uh, not habit, but have that opportunity to then go to their boomer parents and uh, secure or ask for support in some way. So, you know, lots of folks are living at home still, and for very good reason. Yes, and debt becomes normalized. It just exactly. becomes a thing, yeah. right? And so, you know, my father, who's now in his 80s, he, he didn't have to have much of a mortgage when he bought his first house, you know, 50 years ago for $30,000 or whatever it cost. Yeah. Whereas today, and I mean, you know this more in Vancouver than we know it in Toronto, and it's bad mm-hmm. here, is, you know, a little tiny 200-square-foot house cost $19 million. Yeah. So there is, and maybe my numbers are a little off. <laughs> I think I'm exaggerating I, just a I little. Think I got the Maybe in West Van. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think yeah. I got the gist of it. So, yeah. so there is no way you can possibly consider buying a starter home or a starter condo right. without a massive amount of debt. There's no way you can consider going to school without a bunch of debt. So debt is something that is just with us. That it hasn't always been that way. That's the way it is now. And so if I'm used to having this kind of debt, I can't make ends meet. It's not that big a stretch then to be using credit cards, payday loans, other forms of debt to survive. And, and that's where we find ourselves today. And Doug, coming to your to your study here, one of the things that really surprised me was just how much this group of clients is growing as a proportion of the people that, that file for bankruptcy. Um, you know, I was looking and you, you were saying between 2011 and 2018, well, the millennial cohort, um, they increased by 22% of the overall population. There's 22% more people as millennials, um, but the share of them filing insolvencies increased by 162%. That's a massive change. Um, so this, it, it, I think you said it's the fastest group of individuals filing insolvency. 
right now? Fastest yeah, growing it's group. A, it's the fastest growing age group. And and you're right. And part of that is, okay, well, they're now getting older. And, and as you know, the, the perfect age to go bankrupt or file a consumer proposal or the most common age is somewhere in your mid-40s, sort of 44, 45, 46. And, and I'm sure you see the same thing, Blair, where you are. And the reason for that is I've been, you know, in the workforce for 20 years, so I've had time to build up debt. Maybe my kids are, you know, still around and I'm still supporting them. My parents may be still around. Maybe I'm supporting them. They haven't, you know, left me an inheritance or anything like that. So I'm at my peak borrowing years when I'm in my mid-40s. Well, now we're seeing that pushed back to millennials who are in their late 20s, early 30s, mid-30s, who are carrying all this student loan debt. So they then have to resort to things like credit cards and payday loans just to survive. And as a result, they are becoming a fast-growing cohort. They aren't quite as big yet as the the mid-40-year-olds, but they are growing very fast and and catching up very quickly. And Doug, you mentioned payday loans. Can you just talk a bit on that? Because I was really surprised. It it was almost half of the respondents in your your study of the millennials, they had at least one payday-style loan. And this is kind of, you know, it's a recent form of financing. I guess payday loans always existed, but now you've got them everywhere on every every corner, you know, with some pretty slick branding. So what did you learn about millennials and their use of payday loans and other high-interest loans? Yeah, and I would say student loans are the biggest epidemic. Payday loans or payday style loans are the second biggest epidemic. And you're right. It's uh, almost half of our millennial clients have payday loans. And if they have one payday loan, they have more than four of them. Wow. So it's not mm. just one. You you know, when you're eating a box of cookies, you don't just eat one. Well, it's kind of the same with, with payday loans. The total that they owe is almost $4,800 on these loans. And okay, you might think $4,800, that's not that big a deal. Okay, we'll do the math. So, and I'm not familiar with the laws in BC, but in Ontario here, the maximum they can charge on a payday loan is $15 on every 100 borrowed. That's the same here. Same same in in British Columbia. Okay, so you you borrow 15, you borrow 100 bucks, pay it back in two weeks, you pay back 115, then I got to borrow 100 bucks again. If I do that 26 times during the year, every two weeks, I've paid $390 in interest on my $100 loan. That's a 390% interest rate. So, okay, $4,800 is not a big number, but if I'm paying four times that in interest, it's not hard to get into trouble. And the other problem, as you alluded to, Blair, is that it's not just a payday loan. I'm borrowing 500 bucks and paying it back in, in two weeks. The payday loan companies now have branched into installment loans mm-hmm. and fast, ca- fast cash loans. So in Ontario now, it is possible to get an installment loan from one of these places for up to $15,000. Now, they can't charge 390% interest because there are federal usury laws that apply all across Canada. The maximum interest rate is 60% under the criminal code, so they charge 59.9%. And again, on $15,000, that's a huge number. So millennials don't have as much total debt as uh, you know, a baby boomer, for example, but it is concentrated in these high interest forms of debt, payday loans, credit cards, things like that. So it takes less debt for they, them to get into trouble. And these payday loan places now have moved online. And guess who's really good with computers and phones and apps and things? Well, it ain't the 80 year olds, it's the millennials. And so they are more willing to use this form of borrowing and it's more accessible to them now because of the technology and you combine all that and it's a, it's a pretty scary situation. So Doug, we just have like a minute and a half left. And what I'd like to ask you is because we know the situation now, what kind of advice would you give a millennial who's actually concerned and wants to take some action? 
Well, I would say that, number one, you're not alone, and that's why we are talking about it today, and we've done a a documentary. You can go on YouTube and and see that. We've actually presented all this kind of information in that format as well on the Hoyt Michaelis channel. My advice is debt problems do not go away on their own. Compounding of interest is great when you've got a savings account or an investment, but it works the other way when you've got debt. So the time to attack debt is now. The beauty of it is, as a millennial, you're still young, you've still got time to recover, so now is the time to reach out to a professional, a licensed insolvency trustee, who are the only professionals in Canada who are licensed to do consumer proposals, which is a way to work out an arrangement with the people you owe money to, to eliminate the debt once and for all, which is the ultimate solution. Okay, excellent. And I want to, just as we're wrapping up, how can someone access your study online? The direct link to it would be joedetter.ca, all one word, but you can also go to our main website, hoys.com, H-O-Y-E-S.com, and then type in bankruptcy study, Joe Debtor, Millennials, whatever, and you will find it that way as well. Excellent. We've been talking with Doug Hoys, who's co-founder of Hoys, Miklos & Associates, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. And the reason why he knows so much about this is he's got 30 years as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, this is one of my favorite segments that we do, the monthly client roundup. Sort of the stuff that you're seeing that's Mm -hmm. coming across your desk, other than the clients that you're seeing, at least for this first part. What's the, is there a change? What's Canada Revenue doing? Are they looking at people differently, or what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, Elaine. You know, first off, we're busy these days. It's the busiest I've ever seen it. I've been at this firm almost 11 years now. Um, Summer is usually pretty quiet, but day in, day out, we've got people just struggling to get in for meetings with us. It's that busy. So a lot of people are struggling. I feel like there's been a bit of a turn and we're kind of the leading indicator of, you know, where I think a lot of folks are going to have some challenges. So I'm just so great. I'm so glad that people are seeking help, though, Mm -hmm. whether they end up using you guys or just figure out their own stuff. Oh, yeah. If someone can figure out with a meeting with us that they're able to restructure their budget, you know, figure things out and they don't need to form for to file formally that's success for us as well so yeah. we're happy with that but yeah it's busy days these days which we're happy to see okay so in terms of what i'm seeing these days one thing really surprised me in the last month and that has to do with our favorite pals over at canada revenue agency mm-hmm. and the way i'm summarizing this is it seems like they've decided that the small fish are easier to catch than the big fish and what i mean by that is i see people quite often who for it could be a lot of different reasons but they might owe fifty thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollars or more than that to canada revenue agency and CRA seems to be willing to work with them, you know, put together payment plans. You know, they're, they're kind of slow to seize assets as long as the person is in touch with them. But what I've seen in the last month has been two separate examples where Canada Revenue Agency has essentially thrown their hardest methods of collections at folks who owed less than seven, sometimes $8,000 of debt, and were just kind of struggling to get by on a monthly basis. So it really surprised me, and it seems to me there's a bit of a policy change on CRA where they've now decided, let's go after the really small debt taxpayers 
taxpayers and let's hit them really hard hmm. with what's called a requirement to pay. That's what I'm going to explain to you here. Okay, do. So the document I've got in front of me, this was issued, you know, on June 11th of 2019, and it's sent to a person's employer. And big letters up top says requirement to pay. And it says the following taxpayer in this case owed around $7,000. We're not talking $70,000, we're talking $7,000. And it says this requirement to pay from the Minister of National Revenue requires you to send us any money you would otherwise pay to the taxpayer. So again, this is to the boss saying the money you would pay to the employer, but do, to the employee, but do not send more than the total amount at the rate of 30% of each payment for wages or salaries. So the day this was received by that person's employer, suddenly he started working for 70% of his wages. 30% wow. got automatically sent off to CRA. And did this employee know that this was coming? No. This wow. hit him like a bolt out of the blue. Wow. Now, maybe he should have known it was coming. I don't know. You know, maybe he should have known, okay, I owe a little bit of money, so on and so forth. But if he had called me and explained, hey, I owe about 7000 I would have said, okay, usually you're not going to be quick to garnish you on that. Get the returns filed. I'll see you next week. When he came into my office with this, I'm like, okay, well, let's get you filed in the next two days so that we can stop this garnishy from happening. Yeah. Um, because what it's saying, you know, essentially the employer has no, no option here. There's liability here that the government says to the employer, if you do not pay the money that's required according to the terms of this requirement, you will become liable for the payment of this money. So it's, if the employer chooses, hey, I want to be a good guy and pay your wages, well, they're going to pay out of their own pocket to keep CRA whole on that 30%. Wow. Regardless of the size of the employer, yeah. do you think? No, regardless of the size. I've seen it for small. This is a very sizable employer. Okay. Um, and you can imagine, too, what people are so embarrassed when they come in to see me is, oh, is my employer going to know? Are you going to have to call my boss? And the answer is no, unless something like this has already happened. Right. So if this has happened, I'm the person that can stop it. So a licensed insolvency trustee, if we file a proposal, if we file a personal bankruptcy, this requirement to pay has to stop immediately, but that's the only way to stop it. And your point in bringing this up is that this is happening faster. I've seen it two times in the last month on debts that one was 7000 one was 5000 Wow. So very surprised because typically this was for the big fish, you know, the 100000 or more, the people making a lot of money. Sure. Um, both these these points, these clients were earning between two and $3,000, and this made them unable to live as soon as 30% of their wages were taken. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you want to talk about a couple of clients that you've that you've had? Yeah, let's turn the page and, and talk about some success stories yes. here. So a couple that I'm really really thrilled about these days. Um, so one was a young gentleman who came in to see me uh, back in May here, and he had accumulated about $24,000 of consumer debt across a few different credit cards. Um, he was working um, in a hospitality industry, and he wanted to build a career there as well. But mm-hmm. as of now, you know, his income was about $2,000 a month. Right. So you can imagine about $24,000 of debt, $2,000 a month of income. He was living at home, which allowed him, you know, to keep up on minimum payments, but eventually he wanted to, you know, move out. And if he was going to afford sure. rent, there's no way he'd be able to actually clear this debt as well. Exactly. So we thought about doing a consumer proposal and we figured out, okay, you know, if he were to pay back about a third of the debt, you know, around $8,000 or so on a consumer proposal, his creditors would probably accept it. Um, He could move on and make a reduced payment of around $140 per month. Mm -hmm. So we thought that would be great. Now, he went home and he discussed with his family and it turned out there were some family resources there and they came back and said, you know, we were thinking of helping him to pay off this debt, but we think that's probably not the best idea if he could do this proposal. What if we were to do a lump sum proposal, which means the family would help to give some funding and then we could offer a lower amount than a proposal that would be monthly payments over time. It's just going to be one payment, which means the creditors would typically be more likely to accept it. So we decided to try that and it was just last week I received all the successful votes back, Hmm. unanimous 
approval from his creditors. Um, he's offering back in the proposal $6,550 um, on $24,000 of debt, so just under a quarter of the debt, and the creditors took that and ran. They were very happy to get that recovery. He does a couple counseling sessions, puts all this behind him, and then he can build his career without having to have all this debt hanging around. Right. Now, his family might say, okay, this lump sum, we eventually want to be paid back over time. I don't know about that. That's right. between them. Um, but I thought, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, someone in our family is having a debt problem, the way to help them is to help them with a lump sum proposal, not to help them pay off all the debt in full. Because by going through this example, the person's going to come for some counseling with me. We've looked at their budget. We've set some financial goals. Um, this was a great thing to help head off this from getting any worse and maybe requiring a bankruptcy at some point. Exactly. And the counseling and all that stuff that this young person's getting is going to be really important. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. for sure. To Set never them up for success. Yeah. yeah. Good. And one more client? Yeah. So a second client, and this is another successful proposal I've just found out in the last week or so. Um, so this person came in to me and they had a complicated situation, but not that severe of a situation. What mm. I mean by that, it was complicated because there were 12 creditors, 10 of them were payday loans, and they were all, you know, mm. different interest, different fees, different payment dates. So, you know, every month this person was making reasonable money, you know, almost $4,000 a month after tax take-home pay, but they had nothing left because all their money was going every which way and all these minimum payments. And they weren't getting out of debt. So the total amount of the debts was about $28,565. Um, and this person, again, was employed, was working a good job, but just wasn't getting ahead. Right. Uh, we were able to ask to offer a consumer proposal. And, you know, previously this person, if she added up all her minimum payments, you know, it was over $1,000 easy per month and she was treading water. We did a consumer proposal for $165 per month. Oh. So her debts were just under $29,000 and the proposal were offering them back 9900 which is 165 a month over 60 months. Over 60 and what months. I anticipate is she's going to pay that off way quicker than 60 months because she's going to be able to adjust her budget and, and kind of figure things out. But she was just over the moon completely when I said, you know, all these minimum payments, you don't have to do them anymore. And the proposal payment, she thought it'd be seven dollars $800. When I told her 165 she almost jumped out of the chair. Oh, I bet. And now one thing that really struck me as well is on this lady here, very sophisticated, again, successful person, but she didn't know her rights. And when she signed onto some of these payday loans, this was the first time I had seen, but they actually had her sign a consent to assign her wages. So it said, if I miss payments, I agree that you're able to contact my employer and take 30% of my wages. She wow. showed me that. I'm like, this would need to be stamped through a court, approved in a court, so on and so forth. She said, well, no, they just told me I had to sign it. So one of the first things that I wrote was a letter to them saying, you know, I don't believe this has any force in effect. This is not a legal garnishee, but I wanted to get her filed as quick as we could. So then illegally, I could make sure her wages didn't get taken. But I think it was the payday loan company knowing this has no force in effect, but they don't know that. So I want the person to think if they don't pay, I will go and take their wages. So it's very manipulative, very covert. That's what I would say. Oof. Yeah. Which but we know payday loan companies aren't. Worst of the worst, in my view. <laughs> Thank you for saying it so I didn't have to. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, anything else you want to add? I just want to say, uh, you know, if any of this information is resonating with any of our listeners, because we know that this happens on a regular basis, yeah. folks just get into the, that cycle and, and, and needing some help. Go to the website uh, to ask to see some great questions and answers at sands-trustee.com and then give them a call. It's one 800 661-3030 for that first consultation. It's And to find an office near you, and there's 17 offices now in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.